I'm sure you are aware of the trends that I'm about to speak to. Uh, it's when you put it all together, though, it can be a little sobering. Um, increasing cases of loneliness and reports of, of isolation. Uh, you may know, I don't know if you know this, but the life expectancy rates in our nation are on the decline for the first time since the 1930s. And the reason is because of deaths, unnatural deaths, usually referred to as suicide. Uh, because of that, the life expectancy in our nation is declining for the first time since the 1930s. Addictions on the rise, uh, of course, uh, abuse of all kinds of chemicals and substances. Depression is now the most common major uh, medical and mental struggle that our land is seeing, and it's on the rise. It's increasingly on the rise, and, and please understand, don't think for a minute that's all because of 2020 and 2021. Those things were happening. Those trends were well engaged and entrenched pre-COVID. And don't think that it's just economics. Oh, it's just the Great Recession. And, and no, no. It actually has nothing to do with the, the people who have done the studies uh, on these things. So the evidence is quite clear. It has pretty much nothing to do with economics. It has a whole lot more to do when we've lost a sense of meaning and purpose and hope. That's what does that to a people and produces those trends. So with that, I, I, uh, that bright and cheery message, uh, let me take you to the book of Ezekiel. Because we, uh, if in fact we are struggling with meaning as a people, as a land, as a culture, with meaning and purpose and hope, perhaps we need to go to a place where we can find meaning and purpose and hope. And indeed, we find that throughout the Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation. But we're going to be looking at one particular text in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, if you're trying to find that, it's going to be on the screen, but if you're trying to find that in a printed Bible there uh, in your lap, there's three big prophets in the Old Testament. I say big because of the number of chapters and verses and such. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, okay? And those are the, the big three. And if you can find uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, then just keep going a little bit to the right after Lamentations, and you'll find Ezekiel just before Daniel. We are in, are going to be looking at one of the visions that the prophet Ezekiel experiences, I'll put it that way. Uh, and I'd ask you, as I'm reading this, to hone in, tune in to the repetition of two words in particular, because it's important. The repetition indicates emphasis, indicates theme, indicates something that Ezekiel, and really more to put a finer point on it, the Holy Spirit is trying to get our draw and get our attention. So the first word is live. Pay attention to the number of times you see that word in this text. And connected to that, pay attention also to the number of times you see the word breath or spirit. In Hebrew, it's ruach, and it's, this, it, it's translated depending on the context. Breath, spirit, that's one word. Live is another, and believe it or not, they're connected. Okay? 
So Ezekiel chapter 37, starting in verse 1 and reading on through verse 14. Hear now God's word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Well, I think it would do us well to pray, so let's stop and do that. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for the minutes that we have spent already in this service, um, reading the Word, uh, reciting the Creed, singing these songs, uh, that would have been time well spent in and of itself. And now with that, though, the table is set for us to hear your word, for you to speak. Um, And we ask that you would make us increasingly ready, even in these few moments, as we begin to hear hearing the word read, and hearing the word preached. Uh, We need your mercy. We need your help. Uh, We need our hopes restored. We need them also set in the right place. And with all of that, uh, we turn to you. We lift up our eyes to you. We lift up our empty hands to you. That's all we have, our need, and your love. And with that, we come. 
Amen. Ezekiel, let me give you some quick background because it is important. Ezekiel, this moment in time, is during the course of the Babylonian exile that began in 597 B.C., a horrific time in the history of God's people. Uh, Ezekiel himself is an exile. He is there in Babylon, having been dragged out there those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles across those plains and that wilderness to that place. He is in exile. He is speaking as an exile amidst exiles. He is speaking as a priest, now made a prophet, a priest without a temple, now a prophet with a people. He is speaking as an exile to exiles, to people who understandably are tempted to despair and to lose hope and to question, God, what are you doing? Why are we here? What has happened? Is there any grounds for any hope at all? Where are you? There are people in exile. They are a people in exile, and Ezekiel is preaching to them as an exile. Now, Ezekiel 37, the, the portion of this chapter that we just read just a moment ago, is uh, perhaps the most famous of all of the visions that uh, Ezekiel has. It's perhaps one of the most famous visions of all the Old Testament, all the, the Bible, really. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary. Uh, and as I said earlier, it was before we read it, there are two words that keep getting repeated over the course of this vision, the vision itself and the explanation that the Lord gives. And the first one, as we said, was live. And the second one is breath or spirit, again, depending on, on the context. Live is, shows up six times. Breath, spirit shows up ten times. The repetition is pointing us towards emphasis, pointing us towards theme, pointing us towards the meaning, the purpose, the underlying thrust of why it is that the Lord has given this priest, this prophet, this message, and what he intends for his people then and now to understand. And the theme is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward, then and now. And it's basically this, for God's people to live, we must look to his spirit. Not much more complicated than you than that. It's, it's for God's people to live, to love, to trust, to serve, to heed, to follow Him, to flourish, to be what and who we were created to be, to bear witness and testimony to the watching larger world around us, for us to live. We must look to His Spirit. That's the message of Ezekiel 37, this vision, this vision that the, the prophet-priest has. Two parts to this, uh, two, two contrasts, I guess you could say, that come as you consider the before and the after. So the, the, as, the, as we see the vision, and then the, the first part of the vision, and then the second part, so the death and the life. When you consider the death and the life, you, you have this contrast, and what you have are the two parts, the two points, actually, where we're going over the next few minutes. And the first thing you see is a sobering confirmation. A sobering confirmation. And the second thing is a soaring encouragement. 
these two things coupled together in the same vision, the same explanation, one theme for God's people to live, we must look to His Spirit and we must consider this confirmation and this encouragement that is found here. What do I mean? Okay, let's look at these, break it, break it down. The sobering confirmation, verse 11. Then He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. This is what the people believe to be the case. This is the impression. This is the view they have of their situation. They're dead. And God in His grace takes the very words that they are speaking and crafts this vision that He gives to, to, to Ezekiel, fits it right in there. Fits it right in there beautifully. This is how they saw themselves. And the Lord comes to his prophet, his priest, and the, and the people and says, you know, you're right. Well, actually, it's a whole lot worse than you thought. The valley of bones. The valley of bones. Let's go back and read verses 1 and 2. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. This is a scene of utter devastation. A valley full of dead bodies, remains, human remains. A valley full of bones, another place it says many bones. This is, it would seem that it's the aftermath of a horrific battle. And everywhere Ezekiel turns his eyes, all he can see are these remains. And frankly, everywhere he would set his foot as well. It's that graphic, it's that horrific an image, the aftermath of this terrible battle that apparently has gone horrifically wrong. Uh, a scene of utter devastation that would appear to be clearly irreversible because these bones, they're not just bones. How are they described as dry? And not just dry, but very dry. It's, this, we're talking dead, dead. Right. We're talking dead, dead. Very dry. The idea being that the wild scavengers and the brutal sun have done their work to clean and bleach these bones. You probably need sunglasses in this valley because of the reflection off of the many bones. And it's a shameful thing as well because these bodies have been exposed. They were never buried. And in that culture, really in our own today, but especially in that culture, for a body to go unburied and to be exposed in that way was a not terrifically, horrifically shameful thing. So it's just piling up on itself, the vision. And then there comes this question that the Lord asks of Ezekiel there in verse 3. Son of man, can these bones live? And, you know, it almost sounds absurd. The question almost sounds absurd. Can these bones live? live really does that need to be asked is that even on the table so you have this valley of bones and the valley of bones is clearly meant to be a vision of death their identity is gone 
the uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, their beloved capital city, has been razed. The temple is in ruins. The people are in exile. They have, we're not just talking about uh, being confused. They are dazed. They are spiritually concussed. Their identity is gone. Their hope is destroyed. Yes, they are despairing. Their hope is destroyed. We're not just talking about just bruised feelings. We're talking about just broken, shattered dreams and hopes and scattered, the people themselves scattered to the winds. They had not, by the way, they had not been willing to heed the warnings of judgment, and now they're not able to accept the promises of renewal. They just can't hear anything, whether it be the bad news before or the good news now. And oh, by the way, that thing about the shame, it's worse than the shame because they recognize themselves to be under a curse by God. They know themselves, we read it a moment ago there in verse 11, they know themselves to be cut off, that's covenantal language, cut off, estranged from their God. That's where they are. So, this is the sobering confirmation. It's bad and worse than you thought. Hopes dashed. Viktor Frankl wrote a classic from the 20th century, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl was a Jewish doctor uh, imprisoned in a Nazi death camp. He wrote this book reflecting on his experiences. As you can imagine, the conditions were horrific. Death was, was everywhere. Frankl in this book, thinking about how people responded to those conditions in that situation, basically broke it up into three different groups of people. How people responded to this horrific situation. One group uh, basically took the posture of doing whatever it took to survive. They would do anything. They would betray. They would exploit. They would inform. Whatever it took, they'd do anything to survive. Then there's a second group, and they would do nothing. They just gave up and laid down, and in some case, literally laid down and died. That's group number two. Group number three, very different than the other two. Quietly courageous. Willing to give and sacrifice of themselves for the sake of others in a Nazi death camp. And the difference, you may be wondering, what, 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 how did, what distinct, okay, here's what Frankl discovered in his studies and his own reflections on all this. The difference uh, between the groups was, in particular that third group was, the ones who had a deep why then had a how and a what. And if you didn't have a deep, abiding, inextinguishable why, then you had no how or what. Let me put it this way. We have to have a hope in what holds. Our hope has to be in something or someone that will hold, which then therefore means, of course, we dare not put our hope in something that can disappear, that can go away, that can be taken away. Money, Power, reputation, affirmation, adoration, physical health, 
physical beauty, physical strength, we can lose all of that like that. Some of you are experiencing that or have or will. Our hope must be in that which holds in Jesus. He is the only one that holds. He is the only hope that cannot be taken from us. No matter what, no matter the circumstances. The one who lived and died for our sake and in our place and will never let us go. He is the hope that holds. So we have to ask ourselves a question then at this moment. Where's my hope? And what do the thoughts at 3 a.m. tell me where my hope is? Right? That's when it gets really raw and real. Where's my hope? The clear lesson from this text is for God's people, for the bones to live, we have to look to the Spirit of God. We have to look to the Spirit of God. That takes us to the second point, moving on from this sobering confirmation to a soaring encouragement. So, on the one hand, the Lord has to say to these people, His people, it's a whole lot worse than you think. Here's where you get the contrast. Yet, on the other hand, it's a whole lot better than you think. It's better than you could possibly have imagined. So, we move now from this, this image of this field of bones valley of bones to the breath of life and note this is where we see the themes coming together the breath of life ezekiel uh, is called to speak to the bones verses four through eight then he said to me prophesy over these bones say to them O dry bones hear the word of the lord thus says the lord god to these bones behold i will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and i will cause sinews of lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone and I looked and behold there were sinews on them and flesh came upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. Imagine the scene. Imagine the assignment you're given. Go speak. Okay, Lord, speak to who? Bones. Bones? Yeah, and lots of them. Go speak to the bones. Prophesy, proclaim, declare this message to the bones. And then... Not just speaking to the bones, but then speak to the breath. Because at this point, all yeah, we, we, we have corpses now. It's not just skeletons. So we've, we've made some progress. We have corpses, but no one's alive yet. So it's not just prophesying to the bones, but prophesy, speak to the breath. Verses 9 and 10. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. 
So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Change comes. Oh, astonishing change comes. You think about, you know, before and now after. But it comes in stages, right? It comes in two stages, hearkening back when you think about it to Genesis. At the creation of Adam, where the Lord God takes the dirt, the mud, the dust of the earth and forms the man, he's not alive yet, and then breathes. It's very much like that. It's very much, actually, what we see here is also anticipating Jesus in the upper room with the disciples. John chapter 20, post resurrection appearance. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. A lot of echoes, interesting echoes going on here, going all the way to the beginning and keep, you know, towards, well, the new beginning. The new beginning. There's a point worth drawing here. The Word of God, for the Word of God to do its work, the Spirit of God has to bring life. For the Word of God to do its work, the Spirit of God has to be, bring the life, or there will be no life outside of the work of the Spirit of God. Even with the Word of God, the Spirit of God must bring the life. Well, that's the, the, the vision of this breath of life, and now the, the meaning of this is this vision of new life. We're not left to guess what all this is supposed to mean. The Lord in His mercy tells us. He tells Ezekiel, if we just keep reading we just keep reading. We, we come to understand that what he has in mind, at the very least, is a return to the land. Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. So at the very least, their hopes are going to be restored. The nation is going to be renewed. They're going to return to the land. But he doesn't stop there. He speaks of a resurrection. You keep reading verses 13 and 14. And I will, I will, you shall, sorry, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. The imagery of these uh, open and emptying graves is no accident. It's pointing towards something else, someone else, a greater thing, a greater one to come. Who would be cut off for the sake of his people that the we, that they would not have to be cut off? It's speaking of this one to come as a consequence of his finished work we then would have life again and life anew. Eternal life, ever-deepening life. And friends, that's the soaring encouragement. And it's so much better than the people could have known, and frankly, still today, it's so much better than we usually know and usually believe. It's what J.R.R. Tolkien would call a eucatastrophe. That's a word that he coined, a eucatastrophe, meaning a sudden, beautiful, unexpected turn of events in a good way. It's a good catastrophe. And Tolkien in his work, it's a reoccurring theme. 
But it's not just a reoccurring theme in fantasy literature. It's a reoccurring theme in the work of God in and through and with His people. So last Sunday was Reformation Sunday. And if you were here, you may know we talked about the life and ministry of Francis Schaeffer and more importantly what Jesus has done through the life and ministry of Francis Schaeffer. Well, a year ago, Reformation Days 2020, we were looking at the history of revival. The history of revival in this nation. And something that's worth noting there is how there is a revival that is oftentimes ignored that goes eclipsed because we talk so much about the first and second great awakenings. We have really little space for something that happened in Los Angeles in 1906 on Azusa Street. The Azusa Street Revival. I'm going to wage money, few if any of you have ever heard of this. It's a crime that we don't know about this. At the center of what was happening was a gentleman by a brother by the name of William Seymour. And in the course of events on Azusa Street, 1906, the Spirit of God broke, a work of the Spirit of God exploded in that place. In this horrifically segregated society, the color line was done away with, at least for a time, in that place. And it was clearly God's Spirit at work. On the move. Masses, throngs of people, the witnesses said, coming to worship services week after week after week. Your race didn't matter. Your culture didn't matter. Your class didn't matter. It was open arms. The most beautiful experience of fellowship that those people had ever certainly witnessed to say nothing of even heard of. And what was happening? What was happening was the Holy Spirit was giving those people and giving anyone with eyes to see, looking at the historical records, what God's intentions are for His people and a foretaste of what is to come. It was a revival. It was a eucatastrophe happening in L.A. in 1906. Here's the deal. That story's not over. The Holy Spirit is still at work. He is still at work. Again, thinking about the sobering confirmation and the soaring encouragement. You know, when you think about it, there's a eucatastrophe to just to the message of Christianity. The bad news and the good news, right? Like it looks as bad as it could look when, you cons when we consider the diagnosis, the spiritual diagnosis of us, lost, Sinners, hopeless, helpless to do anything in and of ourselves, and lo and behold, here comes the Savior just when things couldn't have been worse. Jesus, the eucatastrophe, the bringer of the... And, and the message, oh my goodness, when you think about the contrast of just with the message, the message of Christianity in essence is, you know, it has nothing to do with what you do. The message is not do more. The message is about what's been done. The message is not, here's your to-do list, go work it out. It's, here's the news story, read it. Just read it for the bones to live. The bones to live, what has to happen? Just thinking about the vision. What has to happen for the bones to live? To receive the breath. 
Do the bones have to get up? No. Can bones get up? No. What has to happen for the bones to live? The breath. The breath. Friends, for God's people, for these bones, you and me, for these bones to live, we have to look to the Spirit of God. And we must keep looking to the Spirit of God, never deluding ourselves into thinking we've arrived and we got it all figured out and we can handle it on our own. We never outgrow our dependency. We start with a rebirth of, with the Spirit and we continue on in life in the Spirit. It's ever growing dependency, frankly, the more we grow in maturity. So C.S. Lewis, the silver chair, one of the installments in the Chronicles of Narnia. There, uh, in this particular story, two children, uh, Jill Pole and Eustace Scrugg, a young man who deserved the name he got, that's the prior story, um, are, are sent to Narnia and given a task, given a mission to seek out and to find this lost prince. Now, as events unfold, they're separated when they arrive at Narnia. And so uh, Aslan then has to give the specifics of, their, of the assignment just to Jill. And he gives her these four signs, these four signs that she needs to abide by such that he can guide her on her way on this mission. And just to make sure that she gets it, he has her repeat it again and again and again until he knows, the great lion knows that this young girl has the signs, has memorized them. But even still, before he blows her into Narnia, just thought of that one, uh, he blows her into Narnia, he exhorts her, and this is what he says. But first remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night and whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I've spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look there when you meet them. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And I won't say anything more. I won't give away the story, except I'll just say this. There's a reason, Aslan told her, don't forget the signs. Friends, disciples of Jesus must not forget the signs. Disciples of Jesus are ever dependent upon the Spirit of Jesus. We never move beyond that. Ever. You may have been following Jesus seven days or 70 years. You do not outgrow your dependency. You just simply grow in an understanding of your dependency if you're growing in maturity. We never move beyond it. It's how we start and it's how the steps continue along the way. We need his breath. These bones need the breath. We need his breath that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit, as in Galatians 5. We need his breath that we would be people who live out the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. We, the bones, need the breath. And imagine with me for a moment the change that would come to our relationships, one with another, if we would receive the breath. Imagine the impact that that could have, the ripples that that could have, even on this community. 
if we would but receive the breath, lean into him, rely upon him. And how can this be? Well, go back to the question. Verse 3, it sounded crazy, maybe not so much. Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord God, you know. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this graphic vision. Thank you for arresting our attention with the sights and sounds of Ezekiel's experience, an unforgettable experience that surely made a deep impression upon him and no few that he relayed this to, and we ask that you would do so now upon us. Without your breath, we are but bones. Without your breath, we are but bones. But with, with your breath, we can live and stand on our feet as an army. You are our hope. There is no other. Would you help us to live that way this week in every little thing? Pray in your name. Amen. If I may ask my fellow elders to come forward as we now take this time to celebrate the supper.